to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. I am joined today by Nuri Turkel, a Uyghur lawyer and human rights advocate who is currently vice chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and chairman of the board of the Uyghur Human Rights Project and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Thank you for joining us today, Nuri. Thank you very much for having me on. I wanted to start by inviting you to share a bit about your personal journey uh, from your birth and childhood in China to becoming a lawyer and remarkable advocate for your community here in the U.S. I was born in a re-education camp during the height of the Cultural Revolution. My young mother, uh, who was pregnant with me, was taken into the custody uh, simply because of her family connection. Um, essentially guilt by association. Uh, And also my father was uh, taken away to the labor camp at the same time. So newly wedded uh, couple um, and pregnant uh, mother uh, had to go through this um, uh, physical and abuse, physical and uh, verbal abuses um, daily at this camp uh, where I grew up walking by until it was... uh, uh, bulldozed and, and, and replaced with a, a shopping mall. Um, the reason that I talk about this um, uh, extraordinary history and painful, painful reminder of what my family and I gone through uh, in communist China, now even as a free American uh, to this day, shows that this uh, brutal repression of uh, the Uyghur people by communist leadership in Beijing is something that has been ongoing. Um, it just happened to be uh, under the guise of a different uh, rhetoric, uh, different justification, uh, starting from that period uh, all the way to what we're dealing today, a modern-day genocide. Um, I could say it's fair to say that I've seen all of it. My early childhood and the restoration of uh, some sort of normalcy in our lives in the 1980s, and then uh, uh, witnessing the collapse of the the Soviet Union, uh, seeing uh, several independent states in our neighborhood, uh, and then the Chinese ratcheting up, 9-11, and then fast forward to today's genocide. So those of us who had advocated, who have been advocating for Uyghur people, um, in my case, in the last 20 plus years, we asked the governments around the world uh, and, and, and essentially sound an alarm that something bad is, is um, uh, uh, boiling up in China. Uh, something uh, ter- uh, terrible is in the plan uh, you know, that has been reflected in official lines, uh, propaganda materials, and the way that the, uh, uh, the regime in Beijing have been dealing with a political dissent. 
even those uh, peacefully, legitimately, legally expressed. So uh, the international community, including our own government, uh, did not take this warning sign uh, seriously. Uh, uh, in the case of our government, uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, Republican administration, then the Bush administration, uh, had a very cozy relationship with uh, Beijing, even acknowledging uh, the existence of um, some radical groups. Uh, in one instance, the Bush administration designated an organization that is not known around the world to most of us as a terrorist organization. And then he moves to the Obama administration. During that period, the Obama team was very engaged with China, just push aside uh, some of the human rights concern. And then the rest of the uh, rest of the process has um, been widely reported. So what I'm, why am I bring this up? Um, the, the, when we have a warning signs uh, displayed, uh, when we see something obvious uh, is happening, we need to stop looking the other way. We need to stop feigning ignorance. We don't have to wait until full swing genocide underway or we don't have to wait until uh, some of the worst humanitarian crisis uh, surface uh, to act. Um, the, the atrocities prevention is as important as taking action to stop the, uh, the atrocities act committed by bad actors around the world. Just in 10 years alone, the international community experienced three genocides, the Yazidis to begin with, and then the Rohingyas, and now the uh, Uyghur people. So we can talk a little bit more um, during the conversation, but what I'm trying to explain to the world is, uh, uh, one, this is not a one-off. Uh, what Uyghurs are experiencing is not a one-off. And then two, this is no longer uh, just a matter for the Uyghur people to concern. This is uh, on us. And then the three, um, this shows the uh, deleterious um, uh, consequences of uh, you know, be going business as usual or appeasing the dictators and authoritarian uh, regime or individuals who have a power to uh, turn the society uh, into this kind of situation and also uh, committing full swing genocide as we uh, have learned in recent years. I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, many people have documented evidence of the genocide in recent years, but genocide doesn't come from nowhere. Um, there are a lot of steps that lead to sort of a, a phase where you would label something a genocide. Um, could you talk a little bit about the the history that you've alluded to here of persecution against the Uyghurs before the current crisis and, and what's currently been labeled as a genocide? Um, certainly. And this is, this is something that... Um, that the audience need to know. The Chinese government uh, have changed the narrative, the method, uh, but the mindset never has changed. The mindset is the Uyghurs are the others. Therefore, they need to be having a separate set of policies, however that might be, as long as it helps to stop the Uyghurs demanding political freedom, demanding Uyghurs, uh, 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 preventing Uyghurs to... Uh, you know, get inspired from uh, democratic movements around the world and uh, prevent Uyghurs to continue to become a, a, a loud voice uh, uh, criticizing or resisting 
some of the harsh policies with respect to religious freedom, human rights, um, uh, and other aspects of the Uyghur life. In the early period of the Uyghur um, uh, struggle, um, the Chinese persecution of the Uyghurs, particularly the, uh, after the um, uh, end of the Cold War, the Chinese uh, militarized in its dealing with the Uyghur people by setting up regional organizations such as what is known today as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that established in Central Asia uh, with the, under the initiation of Russia and China. Uh, its headquarters is in Uzbekistan. It's a, it's a regional military organization that they use that to squelch political resentment outside of China that used to scare the local population who have sympathy to the Uyghur cause. Uh, they also uh, rounded up Uyghur activists, uh, illegally refold them, deported them back to China. And then domestically, they come up with something called um, strike hard campaign, which is essentially just uh, root out, take out anyone who opposes the regime. And this was a kind of a, a, a militarized, secretized, uh, repressive policies implemented before 9-11, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So in the 90s, there were strike hard campaign. They have this weird slogan. They fight against splitism, uh, extremism, and, um, and, and separatism. And then the second wave of repression really started after the 9-11. Uh, they added new context, uh, new narrative that China is also a victim of global terrorism, despite the fact that they were bragging about peaceful Xinjiang just the weeks before 9-11 attacks. Uh, that added uh, also um, a layer of protection in the international arena. In the post 9-11 uh, international uh, environment, particularly in the United States, people are fearful. Uh, this country was attacked and there are some uh, a small, larger scales of attacks against the civilians occurred in Europe. So the Chinese effectively use that as an excuse to scare away uh, potential supporters of the Uyghur struggle. And then this takes us to um, uh, the third wave. And then during this period from 9-11 all the way to 2009, I think the Chinese already committing were committing com uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, the reason being is that uh, initially they used political repression, uh, uh, regional security apparatus uh, to scare domestically and internationally. So that was not even enough. And then after 9-11, they just truly um, uh, turned the uh, Uyghur homeland into police state. And then 2000 through 2009, through uh, the recent uh, wave of uh, repression, uh, the collective punishment started, they were already committing uh, crimes against humanity mass arrest, forced disappearance, um, uh, demolishing uh, uh, Uyghur uh, historic sites, putting restriction on uh, uh, social and, and, and spiritual context, uh, book burning, um, uh, sexual violence against the Uyghur woman. And then since 2016, uh, August 2016 to be exact, uh, Approximately a year after Xi Jinping's visit to the Uyghur homeland, they started uh, today's um, genocidal campaign, full swing, uh, setting up this industrial-scale concentration camps, using technology to uh, surveil uh, not only those inside the camp, but also in the society, 
Uh, they also use its global economic diplomatic influence to silence uh, the international community, Muslim countries in particular, or buy out silence from uh, weaker countries or developing countries. And then, uh, and then one other thing that they have done uh, is to uh, use the international organizations such as UN to prevent uh, the agency, the international organization that is essentially uh, is set up to address this very issue that we're talking about. So all of the things, ethnic cleansing, um, crimes against humanity, and genocide are, are something that have been underway. Uh, sometimes you don't even na- name or label certain acts. If you look at the nature of the acts committed against a vulnerable religious ethnic group, you can say that uh, this is something that has been happening. And my book exactly tells this story. Um, 1970s, 80s, 90s, post 9-11, and then post uh, July 5, 2009, and then the current. So I lived through all of it, uh, both inside and outside of China. So I, I, um, uh, so the people should not be surprised uh, that the United States government, uh, in a bipartisan spirit, uh, both the Republican and Democratic administration recognized atrocities committed against the Uyghur people as a genocide. There is a reason for that. There is a historic reason. There is a, a legal reason. There is a, uh, a moral reason uh, for uh, United States uh, making that determination. Yeah, I really appreciate it in your book, which um, you've referenced here, uh, which is coming out very soon from HarperCollins, um, that there have been many crimes against the Uyghur population. And this has been building over decades, as you referenced. And um, in particular, you have a very large section about crimes against women and women in the camps and, and everything that has happened over the past decades, as well as over the last um, five to eight years since the campaign has has ramped up. Um, but I think one of the things that's striking about the Uyghur story and about what you document in the book um, is that many people who maybe aren't experts in the field of genocide and genocide prevention often think about genocide in this sort of framework of mass killing. Um, and that's not, at least not so far, truly the story of the Uyghur population. What China has been doing is um, is very meticulous, but um, it's sort of pulling out rights, committing crimes against people in ways that aren't just physically killing them. The, um, the, 1980, uh, uh, 19, uh, the 1948 uh, Genocide Convention uh, specifically uh, states that genocide occurs when uh, specific acts are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, and religious group. Um, uh, Ambassador Vanshak, who had just recently been appointed to head the State Department's uh, Office of War Crimes and Global Justice Office, uh, who previously taught at Stanford Law School, specifically uh, argued that um, the intent can include conditions of life that are calculated to eventually destroy the group uh, that has been targeted. In this case, it's directly applicable to the Uyghur uh, story. 
in addition to this particular uh, legal uh, element, uh, there are two other um, uh, actions are seen and uh, through uh, personal testimonies, leaked documents, and also governmental reports, which is uh, the Chinese government's um, a naked attack on the Uyghur uh, children by uh, taking or forcibly separating them from their uh, loved ones, a family. And then the finally, uh, the final, uh, based on various reports, anywhere between 800,000 to uh, 1 million Uyghur children been uh, forcibly separated. And then the last piece, uh, the last legal requirement, as you referen uh, referenced, is probably the most critical one. Um, which is uh, uh, forced sterilization or purposeful prevention of natural population growth. Uh, what we have seen uh, in various uh, reports that have been uh, produced, uh, written based on open source information available on the Chinese um, uh, uh, open source uh, venues, uh, sites, that uh, the, the Chinese government has been imposing measures to intend to prevent birth within the targeted group, which is the Uyghurs in here. Which is, this is probably the most important aspect of uh, what the United States government, uh, two administrations looked at when determining whether or not this, commit, uh, this constitutes a genocide and crimes against humanity. The Uyghur women uh, have been uh, targeted by uh, Han Chinese population uh, with a very subtle um, encouragement by the state uh, as long as I can remember. Uh, even as I grow up, because of Uyghur women's look, uh, Euro-Asian look, uh, they have been subject to um, uh, some offensive uh, social comments. Uh, and, and you know some of it is not appropriate to mention in this conversation. Uh, and also, when you look at how the Nazi Germany treated Jewish women and how the Chinese uh, Communist Party is treating Uyghur women, uh, there are striking similarities. Uh, and also, when you look at how, the Jew, uh, how, uh, how, how Jewish children were treated uh, under the Nazi regime and how uh, Uyghur children treated under the Chinese regime, also... There is so much resemblance. Why do they do this? Why do they specifically focus on Uyghur women and children? It's not difficult for those of us who can think clearly. It's about the future of this group of um, um, this ethnic proud historical uh, ethnic group. What on earth that a um, um, ethnic group or society can survive without a vibrant uh, female uh, 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 or woman? Uh, mother, children. Uh, in my own situation, my mother was um, uh, my uh, home homeschool teacher, who taught me the Uyghur language, Uyghur religion, Uyghur values, uh, even some manners, um, how I should hold myself in public. This is all from mother. There's no formal religious education, never been in the society I grew up. The things that I learned from my mother still lives with me. This is how important a nation, nation cannot survive without women. So the Chinese knows it very well. Even by their own admission, this was something that they were bragging about. Um, there is a significant decline in natural population growth. 
uh, in just, just in a few years. Uh, in, in the year 2020, there were quarter, um, about 20%, 25% decline uh, in the Uyghur population. So that's one piece. The other piece is uh, I also been hearing and uh, included in the book is the sexual violence in the camps. Uh, in some instances, uh, uh, those courageous Uyghur women that I interviewed told me that they were witnessing a Uyghur woman, uh, pretty ones, I might add, picked up by the guards and disappeared into the night, and then they were returned. In some instances, uh, those Uyghur women just did not return. Um, and, and, then, uh, and I also interviewed somebody who was not profiled in the book, but in the news uh, uh, last year, um, who told Congress uh, at a congressional hearing that I testified alongside of her that she was not only gang raped, but the, but the Chinese used the electric stick to torture her. Uh, this was on BBC. This is publicly available. I was really touched by uh, what you just said a few moments ago about uh, your mother and teaching you about culture outside of sort of formal education. And I know that there have been reports documenting um, the Chinese government making direct attacks on sort of tangible cultural heritage, destroying mosques, destroying burial sites, and um, important Uyghur shrines. But I think that, that one of the things that you've alluded to here uh, when thinking about the future and sort of taking children out of the culture, taking women out of the culture, um, and you've mentioned it in your book, is sort of detailing that cultural practices of the community are also lost through all of these, um, you know, forced labor, moving children around, etc. So you're losing the the food, the music, celebrations, language, uh, bonds between people. Um, so how would how would you describe the importance of these more intangible cultural er elements to the existence of your community, and what does the destruction of that um, do to the fiber of a community? The Uyghur people are Uyghur people because of that cultural uh, identity. Uh, you know, if you look at the historical uh, religious practices that the Uyghurs embrace, it could be Buddhism, shamanism, uh, and Christianity, and then Islam. But, uh, but, and then also the Uyghur language is so rich, even in that um, uh, big chunk of land uh, that makes four times the size of uh, the state of California. The each... Um, uh, cities, big cities, have its own dialect, even though it's understandable. Uh, that's one aspect. And also physical appearance. Some Uyghurs look very European, blonde. Some Uyghurs look somewhat Asian. Some Uyghurs look Middle Eastern. There are a lot of Uyghurs look Persian. Um, so you cannot tell by looking at somebody who is Uyghur or not. You can only tell by that person's cultural uh, identity. Culture is what holds the Uyghurs together. But when you look at today, uh, why they are so fixated destroying the Uyghur language, destroying the Uyghur clothes, destroying Uyghur uh, cemeteries, destroying Uyghur places of worship, and altering the Uyghur's cultural way of life, like you know, restricting wedding ceremonies, funeral services, putting quotas and not allowing some rituals, those are the, 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 some of the key objectives of the Chinese state 
to alter, modify, and they use the term transformation, transforming from what to what. It's a very racist term, actually. It's a, it's a term that um, can be interpreted as human in reengineering. Transformation is the term that Stalin used a lot when he was doing a population uh, shuffling. So today in China, uh, even they call the schools as a transformation uh, vocational trend, uh, centers. Essentially, they are wiping out all the values, um, cultural uh, aspects, spirituality out of your mind. By the way, they can break you. They can cause serious mental health. And then replacing it with the ruling Han Chinese culture. The last time I checked, no one said that the, their culture, their language is superior. As such, everyone should be speaking that language or living the way of life that they have. So uh, why, do I, why, do they, why do they do this? Uh, the central government to the, state, uh, to the Chinese state, uh, two things are very troubling in the Uyghur life. One, the religion, that is foreign religion. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam to the communist state is considered a foreign religion. Uh, in the West, we call it Abrahamic religion. For them, that's a foreign religion. That comes with creativity, uh, that comes with uh, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, that goes on the face of the communist ideology. Therefore, these religion, these religious practices, these uh, a spiritual group of people, there's not much uh, Jewish people left in China, but there's a sizable uh, Christian population, Catholics, for example. And there's a sizable Muslim population uh, in China, including those Han Ch uh, Chinese-speaking uh, Hui Muslims. That's one piece. The Western religion, even, they, even to this day, they use the terms such as constant struggle against Western influence. They think the freedom of religion comes with the Western ideology that is toxic to the, uh, the Chinese state. The other piece is also very important. The Uyghur um, uh, cultural identity, Uyghur ethnic identity, uh, Uyghur individual identity, Uyghur values to the Chinese state, to the Communist Party, can be perceived as something disloyal. You're supposed to cherish them. You're supposed to worship them. You're supposed to follow their guidance. But this natural daily resistance that has been part of the Uyghur fabric uh, through the Uyghur values come from the religion. And Uyghur way of life comes from the culture. Uyghur communication comes from the language. We're problematic to the Chinese state, but they don't say this. They always use the term such as transformation. I want to turn now to talking about your current work in the U.S. I think that, you know, one thing that is significant about your career is that you went through all of these experiences uh, growing up in China. And once you came to the U.S., had to make some significant sacrifices in terms of your own connection to your culture and your family and from how frequently you can see your parents to obviously how connected you can be to where you came from. Um, your book ends on a powerful note about your resolve to always speak up, always speak up for your community and always speak up for, for populations who are suffering. And I feel like that sentiment is very intimately linked with your work now as a commissioner and vice chair for the U.S. government. Um, as well as your work with 
the Uyghur Human Rights Project. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've done in that role. I would say that I, I've been fortunate uh, and, and it's been a privilege to be in this noble, noble fight. Um, you know, a lot of people in the Uyghur homeland would like to have the type of platform that I have, would like to have the type of access I have, uh, have the type of uh, experience that I have to advance the cause. What I have been um, uh, bestowed, I would say, uh, after coming to the United States, and particularly starting my law school years, one is the education. And while being in the nation's capital and access, you know, this is a wonderful uh, city. Uh, you can go to meet with uh, members of Congress. You can socialize with the congressional staffers. You can also meet with the civil servants in the executive branch. And if you know somebody, somebody will know somebody, you can get connected. And this is an amazing town for even connecting with the policy experts. There are uh, think tanks, they organize meetings, you know, events, you go listen and learn. So this natural environment was perfect. And also the other reason was not on my own choosing, which was 9-11. I was in the law school uh, and was in my second year in law school when 9-11 attacks happened. I was sitting in my contracts class trying to figure out some ancient uh, British laws. Um, I thought that I spoke English and were able to read, but I was reading the same page 15 times trying to make sense of it. And 9-11, that, that was my first two weeks in law school and 9-11 happened. It hit me hard because as somebody uh, from that vulnerable uh, religious and ethnic community in China, and I worry that uh, the same group of uh, Muslim people might be subject to uh, social, racial discrimination in the United States. You know, we have to be realistic. This country was attacked by a group of uh, self-claimed Muslims. A lot of people killed. And I was, I was able to see the smoke from the uh, library window at my law school coming uh, on the Pentagon direction. Um, so it was, it, was, it was very personal in many levels. And I had, you know, classmates, uh, schoolmates of uh, Afghan origin. Uh, and I was, we were hugging and comforting each other. And I had Jewish uh, classmates. And I had even uh, classmates who were family members were in Twin, Tow Twin Towers. They managed to escape. Uh, so it was, it was a dramatic experience. And I was worried that the, um, not only that uh, I might be feeling the uh, the heat in the United States, but I was worried that what will what does this mean for the Chinese state that we're looking for an excuse? I'm not trying to say that I would I, I I envision that this will all happening, but I did expect the Chinese uh, would uh, misuse this. So that was the beginning of my um, Uyghur activism life. I was in law school. I had a lot of time to think, read, uh, write emails, contact members of Congress. Uh, the primary goal then was to make sure that the United States uh, does not end up uh, in agreement with the Chinese claim that they are also fighting terrorism. And then, you know, after law school, during the law school, I realized that, you know, this has to be a professional operation. Uh, people respect you when you do, uh, when you engage in professional, uh, professional operation, even though this is something so um, out of your compassion, uh, out of your um, uh, commitment to the community. Uh, out of your desire to give back to the community, 
So I, uh, with the support of great, uh, you know, generous support from the National Endowment for Democracy, I co-founded the Uyghur Human Rights Project. The purpose is to have a professional kind of a human rights think tank that produces a first-hand uh, research and documentation so that we can present it to the government officials at home and abroad that they can use to uh, make policy. Um, and it, it worked. And then, I, you know, I was fortunate also enough to work on Guantanamo cases. That was one of my most challenging legal exposure to constitutional law, international criminal law, and very complicated diplomatic uh, engagements. Um, and then I took up a leadership role. I thought that it was a time for me to play the leadership role. I, I, um, I led uh, the Uyghur uh, Human Rights Project uh, as the first executive director and the, uh, the president of the Uyghur American Association, which represents the uh, collective interest of the Uyghur people in the United States. And then I, you know, it, two years ago, um, I got a call from Speaker Pelosi's office asking if I'd be interested in playing a bigger role. Um, you know, I called the an uh, answer the call. I was it was a terrific opportunity, and I cannot be more grateful uh, to Speaker Pelosi to give me this platform, this uh, you know unique position that I can be a government official, and then also um, an advocate not only for the Uyghurs. You know, I'm also advocating for those who are underrepresented. Um, I recently picked up a called anti-Semitism: uh, rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. Uh, and also Islamophobia. I've been speaking out against uh, the Indian government uh, for its treatment of the uh, uh, Muslims in the India. I've been uh, speaking out against Russia and other countries uh, for its mistreatment of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I'm also speaking out against uh, Sunni majority governments for its treatment of the Shia Muslims. So this has been an amazing, incredibly empowering experience uh, that I can use my legal uh, background, uh, even though I'm not trained as a human rights lawyer, I'm an anti-trap, anti-corruption, anti-bribery um, lawyer essentially, uh, and I'm using that for advocating a good corporate practice in the context of cleaning out, cleaning out global supply chain of the forced labor produced products. So, so it's been an amazing experience. I could not be more grateful, and I have this policy work. So um, uh, I've been fortunate, but it's not been easy. This has been very costly for me. My human rights work came at a huge personal cost. Uh, soon after I was um, elected as president of the uh, Uyghur American Association and started uh, Uyghur Human Rights Project, the Chinese uh, confiscated my parents' passports. Um, and uh, since my law school graduation in 2004, I haven't been able to see my mother. My father recently passed away, uh, at, where, but I could not be there to hold mom and carry dad's casket because last December, the Chinese uh, sanctioned me in response to the, the policy pronouncement by the Biden administration that includes the diplomatic boycott, that includes um, additional global Magnitsky sanctions, that includes... Um, uh, uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that, that were enacted. That also includes the uh, additional entities list designation, which is a kind of an export ban measure that this uh, Commerce Department uh, 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 keeps. Um, and uh, the, the initially that list was um, 
used for national security, but in the Uyghur case, it has been used for human rights purposes. So in retaliation, the Chinese uh, sanctioned me and three other commissioners. So out of nine commissioners serving at USERF, seven of us have been sanctioned. So um, I, I, um, I don't even know. Uh, I, I wrote about my mother and me um, and my dad. Uh, in light of the way that I was brought to this world uh, uh, in a re-education camp, and now in the last uh, 28 years, I was only able to spend 11 months with my parents, uh, with my mom now, uh, who's uh, still alive, um, gives you a sense how the fact that I have only been able to see my mother, spend, uh, spend 11 months with my mother, uh, gives you a sense that what I have been going through, what my family has been going through. Um, and this is, this is something that uh, the general public, especially in free societies, may not be able to appreciate because who would want or talk about or complain about spending too much time with the family members or mother or mother with the children. That kind of basic stuff was taken away from me. Uh, what appears to be a, a retaliation against what I have, what I have done uh, for the community, uh, for the, for the international community, as well as my Uyghur uh, community. So, um, uh, I, I um, if you ask me uh, if it's been difficult, yes, I, I feel that I've aged prematurely in the last uh, four or five years in particular. Um, I don't get much sleep. Uh, I breathe and live with conversation relates to genocide and crimes against humanity. When I hear the stories um, by Rohingya community, I could immediately relate to it. When I listen to older Holocaust survivor Jewish ladies, it reminds me of uh, the Uyghur ladies that I profiled in my book. Uh, when I listen to even President Zelensky, uh, it reminds me of uh, my own miserable life, begging politi politicians and policymakers to do the right thing, even though it's not exactly the same type of frustration. Um, so, yeah, it's exhausting. Um, I, I am um, I'm mentally exhausted. Uh, physically exhausted, but on the positive side, as I wrote towards the end of the book, uh, Fighting Back, we made so much progress in the last two, three years. Uh, this is not a lost cause. This is a still a, a, a noble cause to fight um, because this is not only about the Uyghurs anymore. So if you really, really care about the promise, the vow, never again, this is where you need to show that it means something. And if you really care about, uh, a, a, you know, human liberty, uh, then you need to say no to forced labor or slave labor products. And if you really respect your privacy and respect privacy of others, you need to say no to Chinese developed surveillance uh, uh, techniques, the equipments that is metastasizing. There are at least... 80 some countries, 83 countries are currently using or in the process of using Chinese uh, surveillance uh, uh, equipment. And I, I also wanted to, uh, uh, to make another point to make it relevant. Our country has a history of slavery, uh, cotton trade, for example. I think it's, it's immoral, unconscionable that uh, American mothers, fathers forced to hold a, a baby that are wearing 
baby pajamas made of uh, Uyghur cotton made by a fellow uh, human slaves in a modern era. I also wanted to call on attention, a call international community's attention, uh, American people's attention to two things. One, the Hollywood. The other is the Silicon Valley. That are dead quiet. Um, in any type of issues that are convenient for Hollywood celebrities, they use the platform that they have, they use the influence that they have to provide a megaphone. We're not seeing it. Uh, even after uh, this uh, genocide is so well known uh, and, and widely reported in print media and TV media, it's still, it's still deafening that there's no single powerful voice coming from Hollywood advancing. It is un-American because of the Hollywood's interest to sell more movies that's staying silent. And yet you are comfortable criticizing uh, this government, that individual, that entity, except for China. I think it's unconscionable. And then uh, the other piece is, is more broader uh, business, um, uh, a message to the business world. I've seen a business community, a significant number of businesses, either pulling out, suspending their business practices after Putin's invasion of Ukraine in just two, three days. It is shameful that we haven't seen a single uh, business entity, American company, that says no to the slavery, no to slave labor. And yet they're still sponsored genocide Olympics uh, in the case of Coca-Cola, Nike, and Visa, Airbnb. And then finally, we can talk about Chinese technology firms that are developing uh, um, uh, testing and exporting the surveillance equipment. But we cannot lose sight over the Silicon Valley that is providing the hardware and software to these uh, entities, as well as the venture capitalists investing in those Chinese technology. So this is our problem. This is America's problem. We as consumers could do only so much, but uh, it's time for business leaders, Hollywood celebrities, Silicon Valley engineers to do some soul searching. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.